Alright, let's move this so you can see me. Okay, how is everyone today? Let's get into our class here. So, let's move this back. Okay, good. Um, so obviously today we're going to be doing Roman theater and some, some fun there. I imagine this play might not be the, the class favorite of the semester, um, but that's okay. I will say that very often uh, Roman theater is completely left out of most syllabi. Um, when I studied theater oh, way back when, we didn't do any Roman theater whatsoever. Um, and th there's pretty good reasons for this, which hopefully we'll get into today. Uh, but let's start with any kind of, of uh, housekeeping. The, um, the Shakespeare projects are coming up in a few weeks. I'm going to get some kind of scansion stuff ready for you guys then. Um, but I would, if I were you, start taking a look at Lear and As You Like It and see what... Um, Maybe what speech or what character you're you're interested in. So take a look at one of those. You could even see both of those plays. I mean, we have links to Lear that should be up there, um, and there's also plenty of, of film versions of As You Like It that are available via the the library. And we're going to go into that next week in a little more detail, and we have a lot of time open next week for for doing every man and we're going to devote a little bit of that to talking about uh, uh the the shakespeare stuff um good so that that's there I, I wouldn't worry about it but just start kind of perusing the different plays um you know even if it's kind of like go to wikipedia and and read the plot right and see which character looks kind of interesting to you that might be the thing to do, the first step to do in preparing for the first project. Um, again, talking about the the weekly responses, I know there's a, a, still a few more questions about them. It's really just 250 words on something that week, and you have four weeks off. Uh, it, it can be a diary form. It can be, if you want to do it in the voice of a character in a play, that's fine. It, it's supposed to be free in order for you to, you know, a lot of our assignments are tightly constrained. There are a lot of guidelines and points per, you know, uh, points assigned based on how you meet those guidelines. These weekly responses are supposed to be the more easy, more creative way of improving your grade. Um, and as long as you do them at some point, as long as you do 10 of them, you, you get credit. So don't Honestly, you know, this sounds kind of contradictory. Don't think too hard about them. Um, and if you if you need a little more guidance than that, think about it in these terms. What's a question you have about the play, and why is it a question? Right? If you're having trouble creatively coming up with something for that week, um, what is a question you have, and, and why do you have that question? See if you can explain that as a, a weekly response. Okay? Uh, so, 
with all of that said, any questions about the class more generally or about assignments coming up? Okay, I'm going to uh, take that as a no. Um, and so then let's get into this class today. The, the structure of class today is going to be sort of twofold. First, I'm going to go over Roman theater, then dive into uh, Roman playwrights, maybe more specifically. Um, there's going to be a little bit of overlap in those two sections, obviously. And then lastly, of course, we're going to talk about the play specifically. Some things I'm interested in are why do you think Roman theater is often let out, left off of theater syllabi? Um, you know, like why why do most classes, general kind of theater overview classes, not have Plautus or Terence on their syllabus, syllabis, syllabi? <laughs> um, and then how does this play endure, right? Especially how do specific character types endure into future productions? So I'll let you know the braggart soldier is someone who um, morphs and survives in, in a variety of different forms throughout theater history. And I, I think you could even argue into television. And we'll talk about, you know, these these different forms and maybe where they come from but let's start now with the uh with the first kind of presentation here of roman theater okay okay here we are okay <laughs> excellent um everybody can see just somebody chime in and say yes if you can see the the slide Okay, I think I think that's a yes. Um, good. All right, so let's let's get into Roman theater. We're looking at three twenty three to um, to fifty five BC, and really those are the dates that kind of look at uh, Alexander the Great, who's neither Roman nor Greek, and then the the building of the first permanent. Uh, Greek, uh, excuse me, first permanent Roman theater. All right, and there he is, Alexander the Great. Uh, super handsome there. Um, now, Alexander the Great was possibly the student of Aristotle, uh, and for that reason, Alexander loved Greek theater and spread it through the world. So if we know anything about Alexander, um, 4th century Macedonian, which is a, a country just to the north of the collection of Greek city-states, Aristotle might have been his tutor. It's often just talked about as a matter of fact that Aristotle taught Alexander the Great. I don't know there's actually any kind of evidence of that other than they lived at the same time and were possibly occupying the same space. Um, however, other evidence for this for this claim seems to be that Alexander had an, uh, a deep appreciation for Greek theater. And when he went east and conquered Persia and, and conquered lands all the way up to India, he spread Greek theater wherever he went. Now, his brother-in-law, whose name was also Alexander, um, 
went into Italy and attempted to conquer there and was was less successful. But we do see Greek theater following there, not just because of Alexander, the the brother-in-law, but because of past Greek settlements that had kind of spread through the Mediterranean. And so you start to see um, Greek theater in, in Sicily and places like that. But the, the incredible power of Alexander helped spread this, this cultural thing throughout the world, or that Western world anyway. Um, what we start to see is uh, in 323, which marks kind of the beginning of this lecture, Alexander dies. His empire is divided into four sections. Um, and theater starts to become less of a ritual occasion, a religious occasion, and becomes more of a profession. And there's several reasons for this. Um, One of them is we're now covering a great deal of territory that doesn't share the same religious and ritualistic concerns. Another one is we're also in a diversity of political arrangements. Now that Alexander's empire is four separate empires, um, you know, you, you might not necessarily have a, a similar celebration to the polis that you might in the days, the early days of Greek tragedy. And so uh, theater becomes much more professionalized and divorced from those civic and religious obligations. Um, at this time, Menander, who we mentioned last time, is the most popular playwright. Um most popular comic playwright, and this begins to become the error more and more of comedy. Uh, we talked about Aristophanes and how Aristophanes's early work is much more obscene. Um, Meander's work is much more realistic. His work is less obscene. He starts. We start to not just with him, but with other writers. We start to see stock characters develop. Situations are more realistic. Uh, there's a theater historian, uh, a historian who also talks about theater at this time, named Livy. Um, if you're, a, if there's a classicist amongst us, I don't know if there is. You've probably heard of, if not read, Livy. And Livy at one point says that um, who is drawing from whom meander or the real world meaning like uh meander is so realistic that it's hard to tell whether reality is taking from him or he's taking from reality that being said meander's plays still had men wearing masks with hair sewn into them so um you know possibly not that realistic according to our own standards but that was the trend anyway uh yeah, so you're to start to see guilds form. Actors in the in the time of um, Sophocles were not necessarily the most respected people, and the, the sort of cliche of actors as prostitutes had developed around then. But what we start to see with the professionalization of theater is guilds form, and actors start to be seen as professionals, um, in the same way carpenters are seen as professionals and, and other guildsmen. Actors also start to establish the, the reputation as, as working people. Okay, um, first translations, uh, with 240 BC, Livius Andronicus translates Greek plays into Latin. Um, and he starts to translate a lot of Greek stuff into Latin. So, and, and that's his, a bust of his head right there. Um, 
He was a slave but earned his freedom, and his translation of the Odyssey was the most popular for ooh, over 200 years, right? You know, right around um, the last two decades of the first century BC is when you start to see other translations of the Odyssey overtake his. But his work kind of brought Greek plays to a widespread Latin audience. Uh, and so he's immensely important. Um, that's Livius. This is Livy, the, the historian I mentioned before. Uh, those are his, the years in which he wrote his history, which included a, a breakdown of the various types of Roman theater. There is a red line in the middle of the slide between one and two. I have no idea why it's there and I couldn't get rid of it. So that's why it's there. Um, here's another bust of Livy. But anyway, what Livy does is he creates a breakdown of all the theater that's going on in Rome at the very end of the first century. And you can see it dances to flute music, obscene improv and dance also to flute music, a medley of dance to flute music, com comedies of storylines and sections to be sung, comedies of storylines and song with comic performance tagged on to the end. Um, and what is uh, kind of popular here you can almost break this down into two categories what's very popular here is improv and this is where improv in a professional sense begins because a lot of these kind of stock characters would come up and improvise scenes these kind of little short scenes like you know, 15 20 30 minutes um, and then everybody would kind of sing to flute music uh, and so a lot of roman theater is is not uh, not kind of codified, not written down, because it's improvised, and improv was very very popular. Um, yeah, and so comedies with storylines like the one we read for today, uh, these are less. Or these are only one type of play amongst a large group of plays. Okay. Um, and so looking at some of these works in a little more detail, the the kind of farcical stuff that becomes later the source of, of the type of stuff we're working on, um, Attilan farce. And Attilan is, is Attila was a town in um, Campania, I believe, in Italy. And it's where this kind of stuff began. Um, the actors were masked. Um, there was long pantomime plays that were staged that came after that. Um, they were also, a lot of them were, were improv, as I mentioned before, in Oscon and Latin. Uh, so the lower class characters would kind of speak it in this Oscon dialect, and then the upper class characters would speak in Latin. So the comic stuff was sort of lowbrow and regional, like a regional dialect. And... Um, the upper class stuff, like the, the people who were respected, spoke in a nice, respectable Latin. And as I said before, 15 to 30 minutes of sketches. And so the very, very popular stuff, uh, the very popular improv comedies that Livy is talking about in in the end of the first century, it's really starting here in like the 390s. So even, even before Alexander spreads Greek theater through the world. Um, and you could see here, there were far stock characters. So the way improv worked, 
a little different from Saturday Night Live, is that you had a collection of characters with masks that were recognizable. So instead of a mask indicating, let's say, uh, Oedipus, or a mask indicating Creon, a very specific person, we now had a mask indicating a character type. Um, and you can see here, right? The, the, and some of these you probably recognize from Plautus, too. Uh, the clown, a fat braggart, that's pretty recognizable. Um, the comic slave, we also seen that, that type. And these people, they would come out and then do improvs based upon the, 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 the contours of that stock character. Okay, other different types of works. Um, we have, you know, the kind of obscene poem versus Fessinini, I think you say that. Uh, and at Harvest Festival, you'd, you would recite an, an obscene poem because when else would you recite an obscene poem <laughs> except at Harvest Festival? Um, then over here, the, the Fabula Saturnae, uh, these were plays that combine the poem with dance. Um, they were performed by people called histriones, which is where we get the term histrionics. Histrionics is kind of uh, a performance or over-the-top performance. Um, uh, Livius in his translation begins to unite scenes together to create plays, or, or different writers begin to unite these kind of uh, improvised scenes together, and you start to create plays. And that's what's happening with the, these fabula Satura. Okay, some other works: Fabula Palliata. Um, this is the the kind of the full length play that we read today, right? Plautus and Terence. They're a little later than the the farces, the Attilan farces. Um, they're inspired by Meander. Uh, Palliata, a fabula is like a performance, right? A, a fabulous comes from this. Um, Palliata is the type of cloak the actors performed in. You know, they, they would wear this kind of uh, cloak, basically. Um, there's some kind of belief that maybe the, the term Palliata, the cloak, also refers to the putting on of a character, not just the actual physical robe, but the, the concept of acting. Um, but I think that's that interpretation might be somewhat suspect. Um, and as it says here, uh, Plautus and Terence, the Terence I misspelled here, it's one R, my apologies. Uh, Plautus and Terence are the only playwrights that survived who, who are writing this kind of comic stuff um, based upon or, or inspired by Meander. Um, and 21 of their plays survive. Uh, the Fabula Pratexta are plays about um, Rome, about ancient Rome. As I see, not very popular. Uh, either not a lot or none of them survived. And you, you often know something is not popular because it's a, a written form, a scripted play that doesn't exist anymore. A lot of this stuff was very popular but doesn't exist anymore because it was improvised or it was a boat race or we were, you know, feeding people to lions. This stuff isn't scripted, so obviously we're not going to get a script of it. Um, but very often there's a lot of scripted work and scripted genres that are simply out of existence because people didn't like them. But what you can see when comparing these two types of fabula is that there is a preference 
for Greek, even in Latin-speaking societies. Uh, and, and you could see this also with Plautus. All of the characters' names in this play, the, you know, seven-syllable names that no one can pronounce, including me, um, they're all taken from Greek. These aren't Latin names. And, uh, for, well, for the most part, they're not Latin names. And the reason for this is Greek was just considered the gold standard. You know, it was the, that was the language of Menander, right? Why would you, why would you switch to Latin? And so Greek, not only Greek language, but Greek, um, Greek legends and things like that were taken into Rome. Uh, and this is also true, you could think of, of the Roman gods, are Latin translations of Greek names. Rome is not, you know, creating or a, a new religious system is not emerging. It is taken from the Greek. Uh, okay, so Ludai Romani is a, a type of festival similar to the City of Dionysus festival we talked about last week. There were games that were done in honor instead of Dionysus of Jupiter, a little less fun Jupiter is. Um, they were, it says right there, 366, held in September. Um, and you'd have a lot of kind of athletic competitions, chariot races, things like that. And in 240, drama was added and it had its own festival, as you can see down there. Okay, and so some features of the theater, and you can see some kind of um, uh, imprints of the masks right here. Here's a, a carvings of the masks, and you can see that they have hair on them. This isn't, you know, these aren't the original masks, but uh, you could see character type there. They're kind of over-exaggerated comic faces, um, but also they had hair sewn into the masks. Uh, how the, the theater festival works is... The uh, Prietor was hired to produce the festival, um, and he would hire the Dominus Gregis. And that person, I, I would say, based on what I've read, that person is similar to a director. Um, and that guy would supply a play, the actors, he would stage the play, get the props, etc. Um, the masks that they used were, were lost. We don't have any original masks anymore. We just have carvings like this. Uh, and most to, like half to almost all of these plays were set to music. And probably the Braggard Soldier was also set to music. The evidence of this tends to be that the the Latin is written in this sort of sing-songy way. And uh, a lot of scholars think that the, this was because people were singing the verse um yeah and, and so that's that's sort of their evidence that these plays were set to music so if you can imagine uh half of this play or more than half of this play being sung that might be closer to to how it was originally staged and these plays were not in permanent theaters the way they were in Greece. Now, Greek theaters were still being used. It wasn't like the, they were all burnt down. However, Romans were not building new permanent theaters. They were building temporary theaters, um, wooden theaters, as you know, as this says here. This isn't a wooden theater, but they were building wooden theaters on kind of flat land. The, those theaters didn't use the chorus pits. They weren't building those anymore, which tells you that they weren't using the chorus anymore. Um, the Scana, or Sky, Skyna, 
if I'm saying that correct, um, that the, that was still there and that became more elaborate. That was the skein in, in Greek uh, that was larger, more elaborate. Um, and Plautus's plays uh, were staged on... Okay, Plautus's plays were performed on Greek and wooden stages. Um, this is the so you know you had the theater of I mentioned this before the theater of Pompeii which was built in fifty five another giant theater uh, that became permanent and, and exists today as you can see here is the theater of Marcellus completed in thirteen uh, B C um, and that also had this kind of enormous thing here is the theater of Pompeii that was completed in fifty five and it was very much um, a kind of religious space as well. However, if you look at it, you can see how much Greek theater inspired this. Now, in the front here, kind of looking away from us is the gardens, this kind of grand entrance. But if you could look over the top here, and so I selected this picture because you could kind of see in, um, that is very similar to the Greek theater. And the uh, skena, or the, the scheme, the, the Roman version of that, is what we're looking at, right? What we're looking down on. And so very much this is inspired by or, or taking from Greek. And so this is built in, in 55, and this is their grand example. And so you can see how much love Rome has for Greek drama, for Greek comedy, Greek tragedy, whatever, that their, even their theaters, more than 300 years later, are designed to look like the larger version of a Greek theater. Okay, good. All right, let's jump into the the next thing. Uh, I won't keep you past 11, but let's try and do the next part. I'll, I'll fly through this and see if we could get to some, some questions about the play. Okay, so Plautus, Terence, and Seneca. Um, Here's the Fabulae Palliata. Again, these are the comic character, comic plays featuring characters. Uh, one of the most famous is the Miles Gloriosus, which is the braggart soldier, also the, the Latin name for this play. Um, you can see, see him here, who's often featured. So here are some more specific stock types that relate to plays like this in Plautus's work. And actually you could see this. And I think some of these characters are called as much called as such in the table of contents. So you have like the um, Adulus, um, who is the kind of the, the young hero. Um, in this, it's uh, Plesichilus, you know, the, the main male lead. The the Virgo maiden is a Philocomaceum. Um, and of course, the Meritrix in this, we, we definitely had... Uh, one of them. Typically, the Senex is a kind of covetous. The, the Senex in this play is, is a little more cool, is kind of in on it. Um, and then, of course, the Miles Gloriosus, the, the bragging soldier, who is always talking about how brave he is, but turns out to almost always be a coward. And then even the, the most important... The most consistent is the service, which is this um, clever slave. And so that is uh, 
Palestrio in this, and Palestrio is a, a character type that appears over and over again. Okay, um, so the comedies of of Plautus uh, in, involve a parabasis, which is a direct address to the audience, and we saw how this worked, right? Both in the beginning and the end, um, when the you know the uh, the braggart soldier kind of comes out and goes, "Oh well." I lost. Too bad. Everybody clap now. Um, you know, and then there's like somebody who comes out at the beginning, uh, almost in all of Plautus's plays, and it's like, here's Plautus's play. Here's the plot of Plautus's play. You guys really like Plautus. Clap for Plautus. Um, he, he's sort of marketing himself right at the beginning. Um, yeah. Uh, Greek names usually, but street names for some reason. And often current events refer to Rome. So if you're going to do plays that are topical. It's topical, right? It's referencing the, the present day. And here are our two main comic playwrights, uh, Plautus and Terence. Um, he's older, 254 in Umbria. Um, he supposedly wrote 130 plays. We have 20 of them. Uh, or we, we know 20 of them. Um, I'm not entirely sure how many we physically have. Plautus was so popular in his day that many playwrights, in order to get their work noticed, would just say he wrote it. So many of the plays attributed to him actually aren't, aren't produced by him. About half of his plays were sung. And Shakespeare stole uh, the Comedy of Errors from Plautus. So Shakespeare's reading Plautus and, and taking from it. And Comedy of Errors is based on his play about these two twins, these twin guys who um, meet for the first time. Terence, he's a little later, as, as you can see there. Um, he was, he's Ter Terence Africanus, he was known as. Uh, he was a slave, um, and he might have been black too, but we don't we don't know that for certain. It's believed so. And he was a senator's slave. He was eventually freed for the, the plays he did. Um, he also borrowed heavily from Menander. Uh, and one time he was, you know, he was in Athens. He left to look throughout the whole Aegean. Uh, the boat he was on sank and he drowned at around age 25. Um, his plays are a little less... Uh, a little less broad in their comedy, um, and he's using kind of more deep ironies than than Plautus is. Okay, then our tragic playwright Seneca the Younger, who has a, a life as adventurous as his tragedies. So he was born in Spain. So you have people who are born um, all over the place in uh, in in this Roman world, um, and it it can't be underemphasized how much stoic philosophy affects his outlook um he was trained as a young man in this philosophy that was about sort of the management of emotions and desires and um that really informs his work right informs his tragedies which is i i think maybe one of the reasons why seneca isn't widely read today um stoic tragedy is is you know little boring but uh he was often challenging emperors and he happens to come along at the time of the crazy emperors so people like nero and caligula eventually he's ordered by those emperors 
to kill himself because it was suspected he was involved in a plot against them, even though he was by this time retired and in his 60s. And as a proper Stoic, he listened to his emperor and did commit suicide. So that was the end of Seneca. Um, here is the the type of play he wrote, the fabula Crepidata. Uh, they were written for over 300 years, but only Seneca's work survives. Seneca is important because he introduces the five act structure, something Shakespeare continues and is goes continues into neoclassical works. Um, the the person who really breaks with that is like Chekhov in you know the eighteen nineties. So so this five act structure is damn important. Um, he's less interested in in the gods and he's also less confident in them. With our Greek forebears. There's a lot of faith in the gods, which makes sense since you're in a, a divine space. Um, but, but Seneca has less confidence in them. He thinks they're fickle. The violence, like Oedipus putting out his eyes, which was off stage, is now moved on stage. And there's like a cannibal banquet in one of his plays, in one of Seneca's plays. And we don't know if that was ever performed. Actually, we don't know if any of Seneca's plays are ever performed. They might have been what are called closet dramas, which are plays that were just read. So that, that's another aspect of this, that Seneca is working within a performance tradition and he is affecting a performance tradition. I mean, it, you know, five acts are what is done after Seneca. However, we don't even know if Seneca's plays themselves are performed. Okay. All right, and that brings us back to, please, our screen. Yes, here we are. Great. Um, we don't have a tremendous amount of time. That's uh, due to technical issues. But I do want to ask, what were some impressions of this play? And we could start with like or dislike and why. Yeah, their the use of a side is very important. Right, we don't see this so much in Greek theater. Maybe, maybe you see it with the chorus leader a bit, where the chorus leader can speak for the city. But that's a little different from like the slave going out and going, this guy's kind of a coward, or this guy sucks, or something like that to the audience. You start to get to see the, um, you know, the, the kind of two-facedness. And the way asides are used here, we see that carryover. We're definitely going to see that in Shakespeare. Any other responses to it? Okay, so let um, let's talk about the the character types here, and the use of stock characters that are, are characters we're familiar with. Uh, I I think maybe the equivalent might be, or the closest equivalent. It, it's a little hard. It might be in in sitcoms on television. Yeah. Pug Puck does something like that. Yeah, he he does. But this is kind of where it comes from. And Shakespeare was a reader of Roman stuff um, and, and steals from Rome. <laughs> so good. What was going to say? Oh, right. The, the stock characters. So let's talk about the, the stock characters, the, the uh, situational comedy sitcoms on television. That might be the closest equivalent we can have to uh, to this type of thing. 
um, you know, you could see on a sitcom, there's like the lead, there's the kind of dorky friend, there's the female lead, there's the, you know, her dorky friend whose heel is always breaking for some inexplicable reason. Um, how do how do you think creating or using stock characters for your play helps or has an effect? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's 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 recognizable and therefore it will sell. Sure, uh, and that's it. Yeah, it's definitely it definitely sells and right that's that's the thing with sitcoms too right is that if you know you want your sitcom to look exactly like the most successful sitcom that was the last most successful sitcom and and plautus is working in a commercial commercial world he's not looking for honor or as far as we know uh he's he's looking for a sale also stock characters contain information if you can recognize the clever slave you you set up an expectation that the audience can have, but you also contain within that character a lot of information, right? If I tell you this person plays the lead male in a romantic comedy, you know what the lead male in a romantic comedy is. And you might be able to subvert those, those commonalities by having somebody unconventional be the, the lead male in a romantic comedy. But if you don't, you have a lot of information packed into that character. And stock characters do something similar. So even when we have some characters that aren't on stage very much, like like the Maiden, right? Philocomaceum. Um, if you can't pronounce these names, I, I can't either, so you're forgiven. Um, but she's, you know, she's the Virgo. She's the Maiden. And we know who she's supposed to be with and what type of person she is, simply based upon this tradition of stock. Um and last question, so we don't go too long. Where might we see the braggart soldier character type in future types of work? I think one of the most common places to see it would be in like an action movie. Or okay. Mm-hmm. How so? Um, so you see this uh, kind of stereotype of the braggart soldier. You have someone who wears shirts and very boastful. It reminds me a lot of some of like the, the kind of Okay. Yeah, I think that the, the difference, though, is the braggart soldier actually turns out to be a, a coward, right? So he isn't, he is, he's a fake action hero, so to speak. He doesn't have that kind of, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't actually have the goods to back it up. Um, I was going to say, like, we, we kind of see it in, um, I think in, in sitcoms, I, I think of like maybe George Costanza from Seinfeld is, is sort of a bit like that he's that sidekick who really um ends up getting kind of destroyed quote-unquote destroyed by the end of the the comedy uh, we also see this in shakespeare's character falstaff from the henry the fourth plays and henry the fifth or he's mentioned in henry the fifth but the henry the four plays uh parts one and two and this is a character who was a knight who's a braggart but who has no real um no real courage to speak of. He's sort of lying. And so that kind of character of the braggart soldier, that type or versions of that type, I think you could see it today, but you definitely see it even in Shakespeare plays. Okay, and uh, 
and that kind of brings us to the end. We're at 11 o'clock already, or past 11. Um, so I'm sorry we didn't get to get more deeply into this into this play uh, because of our little hiccup. Um, but I will see everyone on Monday, and we're doing uh, Every Man on Monday, I believe, and we're getting into the um, you know post zero post year zero plays, and so that should be. That should be exciting, and I, I hope you enjoy Everyman, and take a look at some of the filmed versions as well that are attached in the content area of Husky CD. All right, uh, any questions? If not, you are free to go.